Hello. Hello, and a warm welcome to the fourth lecture of Middle East 101 series. My name is Asif Shuja, and I will be the host of today's session. Focus on the role of great power in the Middle East is an important segment of our lectures. In this segment, last week we covered the role of the US, and next week we shall be covering Russia. Today we will focus on the role of China in the Middle East. Our distinguished speaker for today is my colleague, Dr. Alessandro Arduino. Through his lecture, Dr. Arduino will attempt to answer the question, can the dragon tame the Middle East or will the Middle East tame the dragon? Dr. Alex Alessandro Arduino is the principal research fellow at the Middle East Institute National University of Singapore, your host. He is the co-director of the Security and Crisis Management International Center at the Shanghai Academy of Social Sciences and an associate at Lao China Institute, King's College, London. His over two decades of experience in China encompasses security analysis and crisis management. His main research interests are sovereign wealth funds, private military, security companies, and China's security and foreign policy primarily in the regions of China, Central Asia, the Middle East, and North Africa. Dr. Arduino is the author of several books, and his writings are often very interesting. Amongst his recent books include China's Private Army Protecting the Silk Route Road. He has also published papers and commentaries in various journals in Italian, English, and Chinese. He has been appointed Knight of Order of the Star of Italy by the President of the Italian Republic. Dr. Arduino will speak for about 40 minutes, after which we shall open the floor for questions. Our audience sitting in this room can wait for the mic to ask their question, and our audience on Zoom may send their questions through the chat function to MEI event, who will forward them to me. With this brief introduction, I request our today's speaker, Dr. Alexandru Arduino, to take the floor, please. Thank you very much, Azif. Thank you, everybody, for being here today in person at MEI and online on Zoom. It's a privilege to be with you today. And uh, I hope I'm not spoiling uh, today's presentation. I don't have an answer to the question, can the dragon tame the Middle East or will the Middle East tame the dragon? As we are talking about uh, Middle East 101, my hope today uh, is just to deliver, especially for our student, three key points. And basically is, uh, first, China is not a newcomer in the Middle East. Second, is not only about oil and hydrocarbon reserve. And the third point, the one that uh, I like most to, to work on, is what I like to call balanced vagueness. What is balanced vagueness? Is Chinese approach all over the world, but especially to the Middle East, setting that a strategy in one country in the Middle East is not going to compromise China's strategy in another country in the Middle East. So basically today, uh, I don't want to look uh, at each country in the MENA region, Middle East and North Africa. I want to focus just in few cases because in one hour and a half, of course, you cannot cover it, it all, but basically looking at how the People's Republic of China presence in the Middle East has been there since the beginning of the People's Republic of China, and how uh, is not only oil 
the primary interest. Of course, 40% of energy reserve coming from the Middle East is very important for China. But at the same time, we don't have to forget the Belt and Road and especially the digital Silk Road. Having said that, we can start to focus on one picture. People used to say that one picture can say more than a thousand words, and this is the picture of the meeting between uh, US President Biden with the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, better known as MBS, and basically de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia. And another picture, and more than a picture, was just a hint about the possibility of a trip to Saudi Arabia just a few weeks ago by The Guardian, and just hinting that Xi Jinping was going to move for the first time after two years and a half outside China to visit Mohammed bin Salman created more than a thousand words. There was a, a media galore of publication hinting about the fact uh, that uh, Biden got basically a cold shower reception when he visited the Middle East. He was not able to gain an increase of production by the OPEC plus led by the Saudi and at the same time, not able to have a confirmation that the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia was siding completely with the US against the People's Republic of China. At the same time, only one article by The Guardian that was followed up by some hint from the Jerusalem Post saying that uh, presidency was traveling for the first time outside China after three years, basically, and meeting with MBS create a, a huge media interest. And it says a lot how China is not only an important player in the Middle East, but is increasing, economically speaking, its presence. If we just look at the Belt and Road, the Belt and Road, as all the economy in the world, has been uh, negatively affected by COVID-19. China has less resource to put into the Belt and Road. But all over the world, while the Belt and Road resource has been decreasing, the Middle East, and especially the Gulf, is the only area when there's been a stable continuation of all the BRI program or even in increase to that. At the end, uh, presidency didn't go to the Middle East, but he left just yesterday China for the first time after two and a half to visit Kazakhstan. And tomorrow it will be quite important in my opinion, the SEO meeting in Samarkand. And it's important also with the Middle East, why? because Central Asia has an historical link with the Middle East. And several countries in the Middle East are observer, member, and probably, and I do believe, let's say 90%, uh, and I say 90 because maybe if it doesn't happen it's just in two days and you will remember that I made a mistake, Iran is going to be a full member of the SCO. So you are going to see China, Russia, presidency, meeting with President Putin, and Iran being part of the SCO. So this uh, uh, country that has been blocked from the external world is finding in China and in Russia and in the SEO an opening for extreme for expanding its international relation. Let me say that we started talking about KSA, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, so we can overlook a little bit about the relationship between China and KSA. And I will use it basically as a framework uh, to encompass all the relationship that China has, of course, with some difference uh, with the other Gulf country. As I mentioned before, it's not only oil, but oil is very important. 
40% of China energy security come from the Middle East. Iran, probably, if the JCPOA is going to find a solution, finally is going to increase its sale to China. But at the same time, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and in minor part, the other country in the Gulf are an important energy provider to China. And it's also related to the security of sea lane of communication and the progression of the BRI, especially in Pakistan, in the Sino-Pakistan corridor. We are talking about uh, 63 billion US dollars of investment that are going to link Gwadar port uh, with Iranian and the rest of the Middle East energy resource. Having said that, uh, it's quite interesting because in the MENA region, and especially in the Gulf, and we have to say now that uh, IMF just a few years ago predicted that in 2034, the Gulf country, the Gulf monarchy are going to deplete their resources. But now with the spike on price generated by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Gulf monarchy have the possibility to still develop their country to greener economy and to a diversification of more high-tech economy far from oil and hydrocarbon. And this is very important for China, because China is the provider of the infrastructure and of the technological solution for the so-called vision. For example, in uh, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Vision 2030, or in the UAE with Mohammed bin Zayed, there is also Vision 2030. And China is a very important component in developing special economic development zone, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and high-tech development. Of course, uh, when we talk about Kaifachu Special Development Zone, it's something that it's very close to President Xi. Uh, we don't have to forget that uh, President Xi's father, Xi Jinping, was uh, the one who created the Kaifachu. At the time when Deng Xiaoping opened China to the external world, uh, Xi's father was spearheading in Shenzhen the development of a special zone and the first economic development zone, as we know, was done a few years later in the 80s, I think 84 uh, in, in Dalian. But then Guangdong was still spearheading this kind of economic development. And in the Saudi Arabia, the same model has been applied by China, doing special economic development zone to promote uh, diversification from oil industry. One important part uh, that I always consider a kind of propaganda victory for China also in being in good term with the kingdom is the prominence of Saudi Arabia in terms of global Islam. Uh, there has been, especially now, a lot of talk uh, at UN level about the situation in Xinjiang, but there has never been a condemnation nor uh, a negative comment on the issue coming from the Arab world and especially for Saudi Arabia. If I recall correct, when Mohammed bin Salman visited China and it was 2019, that question was asked by Western media, I forgot which one, and the answer was very straightforward. Xinjiang, it's an internal Chinese problem. Then also we have to see that definitely the relationship between Gulf country and China are not based on shared value or shared model, but on interest model. But at least uh, what has always been said from the Gulf is that not a confrontational model. 
like the one promoted by the United States. And for example, if we are looking at the expansion of the digital Silk Road, the best example comes from NEOM. NEOM is a project, is a pet project of uh, MBS, looking at the development of a futuristic city when there are no cars, everything is connected by an artificial intelligence, drone deliver everything, and uh, is this futuristic city in the middle of the desert. And all the technology are supposed to come from China. Having said that, if we move, of course, as I mentioned before, is not only energy, but energy is extremely important. Uh, these uh, data are going to shift soon, uh, and part uh, of the oil probably that uh, are not going to be absorbed by Iraq during the ongoing uh, instability in the country probably will come from Iran as soon, or if the JCPOA is going to find a solution. But if we look at numbers, and with China always, number can be misleading because they are too big, uh, an important part uh, is the investment of the BRI importing infrastructure. In 2019 alone, Chinese investment in the Gulf uh, uh, topped 177 billion, and this is going to expand if there are the possibility. Israel is another example because the position, the geostrategic position of Israeli port between the Red Sea and the other coastal area is extremely important for China. Having said that, you can see not only how the Belt Air Road move across the Middle East, but if you see in this map, uh, the dark green part is a comprehensive strategic partnership. These are the five countries that have reached the top of cooperation with the People's Republic of China. There is a strategic partnership, is a high level. Comprehensive strategic partnership is the highest level. For example, if you look at Algeria, is more rooted in historical connection between China and the country. But especially if you look at the Gulf, it's all there. It's the energy, is trade, is the digital Silk Road. And then looking at the other area, of course, the first thing that you can see in this map is the term of sea lane of communication and the choke point that China is very careful in trying to avoid if there is a confrontation, especially a direct confrontation with the United States. The other part that, in my opinion, is quite understudied and deserves much attention is the digital Silk Road. A uh, common opinion is that the digital Silk Road uh, is just uh, the Belt and Road with 5G and 5G by Huawei. That's not the case. Digital Silk Road uh, is extremely important. Uh, there is a lot of talk in the West, and by the West I mean the United States and Europe, about uh, China filling the security vacuum in the Middle East. When U.S. pivoted to the Indo-Pacific, create uh, fear create an anxiety of abandonment in the Middle East. And this country, we're looking at China. Is China going to be the global sheriff in the Middle East, as the US has been doing for decades? Uh, the answer is pretty straightforward, in my personal opinion, and take it as a personal opinion. No, for a very simple reason. One, is not a security provider, and in some respect, it's also not capable security provider. Under Xi Jinping, the PLA has been reforming at pretty fast pace, but definitely would not lift capabilities, weapon, as the United States is capable to do it. And at the same time, if you look uh, in the last 10 years, 
at the academic production of Chinese academician in mainland China, uh, there is a recurring theme. Avoid the Middle East quagmire. Avoid getting entangled in the myriad of problem of the Middle East. And in something quite interesting, because uh, we are looking at an era in which uh, the five principles of peaceful coexistence of China are going to change, but probably China is the only superpower that is in good term with each country in the Middle East. And we are talking Saudi Arabia on one side, Iran on the other side, Israel on one side, Palestinian on the other side, and so on. And China still is in good term. Good term because of trading, good term because it's less confrontational. The question is China going to be capable to keep this good term forever? No. Is China going in the near future to need to have a boot on the ground? Probably. But definitely, it's a different form. And in my personal opinion, for a pure security, not from a commercial standpoint, the digital Silk Road is where China is not planning to fill the security vacuum left by the United States, but it's already been filling that security vacuum, but in a different way. Let me just give you some example. Again, if we look just at a narrow area in the MENA region that is the Gulf area, Gulf area have one peculiarity, and not only related to oil money and oil wealth, is the GCC country have uh, the highest level of internet and new and uh, 5G mobile phone penetration. The population is young, is internet savvy, and all the network, and again, is not only 5G, ZTE, or Huawei, but all uh, the e-pillars of e-commerce, e-government, cybersecurity, internet of things, uh, and so on, are provided, as we speak, by China. Then, if you build uh, the digital pipeline of the future metaverse, that is something that now has been talked a lot, uh, especially in the US, beside the fact that the concept of metaverse is a 30 years old concept from Neil Stephenson that is a sci-fi author. Having said that, you can see there is a huge inroad of Chinese technology. We are talking about billion per year. And also there are quite important things happening on the fintech sphere, for example. Trump administration showed to China how sanction can bite, how sanction can hurt. And at the time, Iran, after Russia and then China, are realizing how the control of SWIFT in channeling fund and money is a paramount importance. And then they are looking at alternative way in doing this. For example, China recently launched the CBDC, Central Bank Digital Coin, we are not talking about Bitcoin. We are still not talking about use about blockchain. Bitcoin is something that is not welcome in China, as we speak, but is very welcome, for example, in the United Arab Emirates. But uh, with CBDC, there is a pilot project linking China, Thailand, and the UAE to use the digital renminbi as a mean of transaction. And this transaction is completely outside the control of the SWIFT and the control of the United States. And in Saudi Arabia, there are quite advanced talk to have a CBDC or just the renminbi as a main currency to trade in oil and no more the US dollar, just to avoid sanction fighting. 
Same for Iran, but is, Iran is, a, is quite a different story. So in terms of security, if you have the infrastructure, the Baidu instead of the GPS, uh, fiber optic, 5G, telecommunication, cloud, IoT, big data, all made in China, managed by China, you don't have to forget that China recognizes the cybersphere, the digital world, as part of Chinese national territory. In the West, especially in the US, internet is free. It's a free-for-all thing. Then you can start to discuss, we can discuss if it's corporate controlled, where is the privacy and so on. But in China, the law, the DSL, Digital Cybersecurity Law, uh, that was uh, enacted two years ago, uh, but just entered into force at the beginning of this year, is very straightforward and is based on one concept. Cybersphere is China national territory. It means that all Chinese security law are applied and all the data that move in China or is about China is competent of the MSS, of the police, and all the cybersecurity infrastructure. Having said that, if you just figure it out, you are a foreign bank operating in China and you collect Chinese data, your server or your firewall password have to be open to the Chinese government. But if this data is a cross-border data, and we are talking of fiber optic, so you have a cross-border transaction that in a nanosecond cross several countries, still the data need to be open to China. So, are we going to see a decoupling, a technological decoupling in which country will have to make a choice? Are we choosing the United States model or are we choosing the Chinese model? I hope sincerely that uh, we are not going to face this question or getting something in the middle. But if in a future that is not too far, there is going to be this question and we are going to see a kind of uh, digital iron curtain I mean, I hate cold, using Cold War analogies for the simple fact that now we are not in a Cold War. Even if there is a lot of talk about Cold War 2.0, is a completely two different thing. At the time of the Cold War, the Soviet Union economic model was completely or almost completely detached by the United States and the West. While at this time, China, the Chinese economic model is completely embedded in the globalization. So it's not possible to talk about Cold War in economical term. But if we want to use the digital iron curtain, just because it's quite cool, that's okay. Having said that, if this is going to happen and there is going to be a question, are we going to choose a Chinese uh, digital model or are we going to choose a Western digital model, then the choice in the Middle East, in the MENA region, in Africa, is not a choice, it's been done already. Infrastructure are made in China. And if Western companies want to do business, then it's a choice that also they have to make. Having said this, we started with the micro, looking at Kingdom Saudi Arabia, and now we move a little bit on the macro part. So what are the trends of the People's Republic of China in the Middle East? Referring to energy security, as I mentioned before, this is very important, preserving the sea line of communication open, because still China from 12, uh, 2012 started to be a net importer of energy and still need this energy from the Middle East. And then uh, China is definitely for the year to come still trying to maintain what I like to call balanced vagueness. So balancing against the United States influence, but without uh, getting entangled in the myriad of confrontation that are going on in all the Middle East. We can see just now 
problem between uh, Israel, uh, the area of Gaza and Palestinian. We are seeing Iraq, uh, Iran, uh, and so on. So all the area without looking at ongoing war, the one in Yemen, that is one of the world contemporary greatest catastrophe, or reconstruction in Syria and that area. And we have not to forget, of course, the terrorism threat that is still there and is moving from the Middle East to Africa. But of course, I always like to think about the Middle East, uh, not uh, as the usual two trope that is a gas station and is a source of terrorism. Middle East is much more than that. And the day we will start to stop thinking about it, just these two points, uh, it will be a time then we can embrace the culture of the Middle East uh, and all the geopolitical complexity and reality. Having said that, uh, uh, China uh, is expanding its uh, soft power in the Middle East. Then I think uh, we will need more than one hour to discuss uh, if the definition of NAI of soft power can be used on China. Well, I always still like to think that Chinese soft power is just hard power used softly. Having said that, uh, there is a new model that China is pushing uh, uh, in the Middle East and is very well received, and is that non-democratic development model. In the Middle East, it also had an appeal, especially when China increased the sale of high technology for crowd control population for population control, facial recognition, AI, and so on. And then we don't have to forget migration. Uh, Chinese embassy and consulate don't have an exact number, but we are talking at least a million Chinese worker in the Middle East moving back and forth. Then to forget, for example, when COVID started and it was in Iran, I was a Chinese pilgrim in the holy city of Om, and was the area when COVID started, and you can talk about the mobility, about the region and in between China. And uh, several times, uh, countries in the Middle East use also the China fear in the US as a bargaining chip. If US uh, is not willing or comfortable to say advanced weapon system, then most of the country will raise their hand and say, okay, if you don't want to do that, we go to China. It happened, for example, with Turkey. Uh, when the U.S. was unwilling to sell the Patriot missile defense system, the first thing that Erdogan did was to ask in China to sell their version of the system. And at the end, they ended up with something a little bit better that is the S-400, is the Russian anti-missile system. These basically are the macro trend. But again, uh, without looking too much at the MENA region, what I want to just underline today are the three key points that I had from the start. One. China is not a newcomer into the Middle East. Second, is not only about oil. And third, is balanced vagueness. Uh, looking a little bit at the historical part, why I'm always stressing the fact that China is not a newcomer. We are not going to look at imperial China, at the link it had with the Persian Empire, and so on. And this is historically very important. But if we just look uh, at the People's Republic of China, then uh, I arbitrarily divided these three uh, timelines, and please just take it as it is. First, uh, 1949, uh, 1979, uh, it was first and foremost support to national liberation movement. We are talking about China that was poor, that didn't have much economic and much security resource to offer to the Middle East. But at the time, uh, it was uh, an ideological struggle against colonialism, and against the imperialism. And in the Middle East, 
China was a staunch supporter of the PLO, People, uh, Palestine Liberation Organization, or Fatah, at the same time uh, supported Algeria. And that's why I mentioned to you before, Algeria had this uh, strategic partnership at very advanced level, but it's not only based on trade, it's based on historical reason. Because at the time of the war against France in the post-colonial war, the Front Liberation Nation was supported by China with weapon. And another one is, uh, the one is the picture here in Oman. Oman had a very bloody civil war with the Dofari Marxist rebellion. The Dofari Marxists were used to read in Arabic the Red Book of Mao Zedong. And if you can see in the picture, the Kalashnikov that they embrace is not an AK-47. Basically, all the Kalashnikov look alike. It's all Varsav Pact 7.62 millimeter weapon, but this one is a Model 56, is the Chinese version. You can find it just looking at two things. One, the thing written on are in Chinese. So good luck if you have to select safety or not if you don't read Chinese. But the other is the bayonet, is a spear, is the only one that differentiates from the other. Having said that, at the time, until the 79, China was very keen to support with military supplies this group. Then in 79, it started to change. It was a selective participation. The ideological part was less important and more cautious. Why I selected 79? Two reasons. First and foremost, 76 Mao Zedong died. 79, Deng Xiaoping rise to power, but it's also a time in which the US was doing with Nixon a quite smart move, trying to take China out from the embrace of Russia, and they succeeded. Something that I unfortunately don't see happening today with Russia after the invasion of Ukraine, especially when someone is talking about unlimited friendship and partnership. Having said that, until 2012, China is not uh, a net exporter, a net importer of energy. Then 2012, uh, China became extremely hungry in terms of hydrocarbons, uh, and the Middle East became again a focal point. Coming more near to us, uh, especially 2016, 2018, we can see that China is increasing on daily basis, is role in the Middle East. Uh, I'm not sure if you can read, but the white paper on the right is a Chinese white paper of 2016 uh, in relation with the Arab country. It's not Middle East, it's just the Arab country. If you look at this white paper, it's not too long, but it's quite interesting because the security part is a very tiny paragraph. All the white paper is devoted to economic, trade, cultural cooperation. The very small part that is related to security calls about the three evil, something that who work on Central Asia know very well, that is terrorism, extremism, and separatism. But in that small paragraph, in my personal opinion, there is one line that is extremely important for China Watcher and for the people who look at China development in its international relation and vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world. There is a sentence that basically says that if the host country require and request it, China can send the PLA. Something that was quite uncommon because China is not looking at sending the PLA abroad. It just opened one military base in Djibouti. 
I've been there and it's an extremely crowded area, a very tiny country when there are military bases from all over the world, starting with the US Camp Le Monnier, British, Italian, even Japanese as a military army there. And then there is a PLA and PLA Navy. There is another uh, military outpost outside China, the second base, but there is not much talk about it. And this is in between Afghanistan and Tajikistan, but that's another issue and doesn't cover Indo-Pacific at all. Moving from the historical perspective, that's the other key point that I mentioned before. Uh, every time, uh, especially for a student that is start to look at China in the MENA region, there are also two points of view and two lenses to look at. The first is the macro one, how China-US friction impact the relationship of China and the Middle East country with China. And this is uh, a game that the Middle East country are quite able to play, but it's become very difficult in the last five years due to the very high increase in uncertainty. So uh, China definitely is an economic juggernaut or the economic juggernaut. But at the same time, country in the Middle East know very well that China cannot offer the security guarantee that the United States was offering. Also, in my opinion, there is a misconception about the US. US is not leaving the Middle East. It's just returning, as our chairman here, Bilari Kauzikan, always like to mention, to the fact that he's returning to his former role of offshore balancer. And in this respect, it means that US will intervene when it suits the US geopolitical imperative, uh, is not leaving the Middle East. Of course, it's no more with the number of boots on the ground that were before, as in the previous lecture, my colleague Jean-Luc Salman explained it very well. Having said that, uh, moving from the macro perspective of China-US confrontation in the region, then you have to look at the other confrontation, and basically Kingdom Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Israel. And as I mentioned before, China is able to maintain very good relationship with all these countries at the same time. Uh, if you recall in 2021, when uh, uh, Foreign Affairs Minister Wang Yi met in Anchorage, Blinken, it was quite a disaster in my opinion in terms of, uh, of a meeting, but just after that meeting, Wang Yi visited the most important country for China in the Middle East. And at the same time, when he was signing an MOU in Riyadh, the day after was flying to Tehran. And after Tehran, he was in Ankara, meeting with Erdogan. And it say how the primacy of the Middle East is increasing in importance for China. And this is extremely interesting in my opinion, if we look at uh, the trend. As I mentioned earlier, China is uh, changing slowly, the five principles of peaceful coexistence, and one principle especially, the principle of non-interference in the affair of the other country. This principle has been uh, at academic level eviscerated in the West and also is under debate uh, among Chinese scholars in China, looking about principle of selective engagement or partial interference and so on. And then of course, uh, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the China economic uh, diplomatic model is a banking diplomacy, is rooted in the Belt and Road Initiative, and the most important part for the Belt and Road is security. If there is stability, the Belt and Road can succeed. Insecurity, instability is going to create huge problem 
for this development model. And China realized not only now with the new war starting from Ukraine and so on, but early on at the beginning of the Belt and Road Initiative, there was this feeling in Beijing that just throwing money at the problem was going to solve the problem. We have a problem, there is some contestation in Soaria, put more money, that's fine. No, it isn't. If you look at area, for example, a little bit outside the Middle East, like Pakistan, where China put 63 billion US dollar, there has been an increased number of attack on Chinese engineer. Nine Chinese engineers were killed in Dazu power plant in the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Recently, in the University of Karachi, three Chinese uh, uh, teachers from the Confucius Institute have been targeted and killed by uh, a suicide attack led by uh, a woman from, uh, the Baluchi, from Baluchistan. Also, in the Middle East, there are areas where the Belt and Road is under, uh, is, is, is targeted. And in this respect, uh, the answer up to now has not been increasing the boot on the ground. It's been relying on private security, Chinese private security, and relying on local country to provide security. And then again, always trying to abide what I like to call balanced vagueness. That strategy in one country is not going to jeopardize China's strategy in the other country. And for the receiving part, the Middle East country, it's a balancing act that uh, in the next year, especially in the next two, three years, is going to be increasingly difficult for all the part into that, making the choice between US and China. Nobody wants to be asked to make that binary choice, but it is something that we are going forward in that direction. And then from the US part, how the United States perceive the security stance and the security architecture in the Middle East. Of course, the global security architecture is transitioning from where to where there are the big question and what are the Chinese answer to this transition. From a United States point of view, it's straightforward. And you can read already in 2019, China and Russia are the new threat for Middle East security and stability. I think it's self-explanatory. From the Chinese point of view, what are the tools that China is applying now? First and foremost, using the blue helmet, mostly in Africa, then in the Middle East, is increasing the number of uh, blue helmet sent by China, paid by China in the region. Is uh, supporting the joint anti-piracy mission that has been extremely successful, especially in the area near Somalia in East Africa. But as soon as uh, the military effort has been concentrating in the East Africa, piracy as an economic model have shifted in West Africa. So now the most uh, area attacked by pirate and coming I'm here in Singapore talking about pirate doesn't come as a new because Malacca Strait also is an area with piratical activity. We can see that East Africa is, a, is an area where there is increasing piratical activity, especially near Gulf of Guinea. Arm transfer, yes, I, I didn't talk much about that. China is increasing the arm transfer to other countries in the Middle East. But again, it's very small footprint compared to United States, compared to Russia, even compared to other military partners of the country in the Middle East, looking at France, for example. And uh, the question is how and when China is going to move from an unwilling security provider to a willing security provider. Unfortunately, I don't have the answer to this 
But it's quite interesting, for example, if we look again at the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Recently, they acquired two plants to produce combat drones. Taihong and Winlong drone are produced in Saudi Arabia under Chinese license. And they have an upgraded version of the Dongfang missile, I think the 21, if I recall correct. And this also has an historical link to the one that I mentioned before. If we look at the 80s, during the Iran and Iraq war, there was a floor of SCAD missile moving from one area to the other. And the Saudi was feeling threatened by that and asked to the United States to provide Pershing missile system. The United States was not comfortable to give in this high technology to the Saudi and declined it. And the Saudi bought the Dongfang 3 model from China. And up to now, all this delivery system is upgraded and bought from the Saudi Arabia from China. Same thing about the Patriot defensive system that is shrinking and then there is looking at China or looking at the other area. And then again, as a token, a bargaining chip. UAE was bidding for the F-35 fighter, but the time when the US refused under different ground to provide that kind of weapon system, including drone, long range drone, then the UAE shifted immediately asking China if it were possible to acquire it. And it still used a bargaining token between the US uh, and the Emirates. Then, as I mentioned before, it was quite interesting to see the timing of the six country tour in the Middle East of Foreign Affairs Minister Wang Yi in 2021. And uh, at the same time, uh, China was stated that it's going to increase his role as a security provider in the Middle East. But then uh, it's really a matter of foresight to see if it will be boot on the ground. And as I mentioned earlier, I, I truly believe that uh, the region digitalization with Chinese characteristic uh, is proceeding at full speed and from a security standpoint, not only from a trade and from a commercial standpoint, is extremely important. Then I will just give a couple of minutes of talk about Iran. Uh, since uh, the economic sanctions strangle chokehold put by Trump administration with the policy of maximum pressure on Iran, China has increased his role as uh, basically the unique lifeline to Iran during the economic situation. Having said that, uh, if the JCPOA is going to find a solution, hopefully it will change for China. Yes, it's good uh, in terms that China is not looking to have a nuclear Iran. Nuclear Iran will mean that there will be a nuclear race in the region, something that probably is going to happen sooner than later. But at the same time, China now is the only economic provider giving a lifeline to Iran. And if the JCPOA is going to find a solution, Iran will have more options. And this option is not only China. China, yes, is the only country who can afford to invest heavily. But even the MOU that was signed recently, the 25 years MOU between Iran and China, uh, plays a different picture if you read it in Farsi or if you read it in Chinese. What I mean by this, Iran always projected this MOU as a game changer, while in China is quite downplayed. It's not only a matter of security, security is a small part. Again, it's a matter of economic development zone, it's a matter of territorial gain from China. China is looking to develop two ports uh, in the port island of Kesh and in another port uh, near the Strait of Hormuz, that is a strategical strait in, in that area. 
And on the other part, China helped Iran to get more opening on the international geopolitical scene. And this opening is going to be witnessed in two days with the Samarkand meeting of the SEO, where probably Iran is going to be a full member of the organization. So we have an organization where you have Russia, China, is mainly an economic organization, sometimes has been portrayed as a NATO of the East, is absolutely not the case, because the military organization in the area is the CSTO, is led by Russia, and its show is teeth and fang during the riots in Kazakhstan just a few months ago, when uh, Kazakhstan president called the CSTO to intervene. And in 20 hours, mainly Russian soldiers, 3,000 Russian soldiers with light tank were deployed all over the strategic area in Kazakhstan. I mean, Kazakhstan is a huge country, but all the population are just in two cities. So it's quite an easy job. Having said that, uh, it's quite different thing. It was not China who was sending troops, it was Russia. But then, that's important, President Xi visit yesterday to Kazakhstan, stating that China is going to sustain Kazakhstan, to sustain President Tokayev, not only the father of the nation, Nazarbayev, gave a very strong signal to Russia. And don't forget that Russia still consider Central Asia, and especially Kazakhstan, his own Dadushka, the girlfriend and an area where they can move back and forward quite easily, as they have been doing since the time of the Tsar. And 35% of the population, if I recall correct, in Kazakhstan is ethnic Russian. So I want to use an excuse like Crimea is already there. But it's not time to talk about Central Asia, because uh, in a few weeks we will have Raffaello Pantucci talking, and he's the expert on the region, on Central Asia here at uh, Middle East 101. One thing that I want to say at the last part, uh, the historical part, and with Iran is extremely important. As I mentioned before, in 49, the ideological fight against imperialism was uh, predominant, but the relationship between imperial China and Persia are a long-standing relationship. It's a huge trade relationship, but it's also interlinked in cultural relationship. And it plays very well because all the memorandum written between uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran and China all start with two countries with an ancient history. For example, if you look at the blue and white porcelain, something that started at the end of Yuan dynasty and floored in the Ming and Qin dynasty, were just for the export. Chinese uh, experts in art at the time were not looking at blue and white porcelain as an object of art, but it was just a tool for export, and it was completely exported to Persia. And if you want to look at the best porcelain from China at the time, there are only two places in the world that is, is not in China. It's Ardabil Mausoleum in Iran and it's Topkapi El Sarai Museum in Istanbul. And that's the strong cultural link. But at the same time, if you look at a museum like Shanghai and you find late Tan Dynasty and so on, Sansai, and this kind of uh, ceramic, then you see camel and you see Iranian traders on this camel, and it tells you the story. It's a very long story between the two countries. Then, last but not least, looking at uh, non-Arab country in the Middle East, uh, Turkey. The last leg of the trip of Wang Yi was to meet his Olomog, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of uh, Turkey, and uh, uh, with Recep Tayyip Erdogan. It's important because there is always this relationship of hate and love between Turkey 
and Turkey, as he said now, apologies if I go back to the old name, and China. Having said that, they have a long-standing uh, diplomatic relationship, but the diplomatic relationship has always been married by the role of Xinjiang Uyghur and the role that Turkey play into that. Uh, this has been toned down extremely in the, in the latest uh, three years. China is increasing its economic footprint in Turkey with the BRI, uh, and also think that it's quite common to several countries in the Middle East. There is a huge differentiation between what China is, how China is perceived by elite and how China is perceived by the population in the street. In Turkey, if you just go in the market and you talk about China, the answer most of the time is not so positive. But if you look now at a little level where the decisions are made, and you see we are talking about top-down government, then there is more interest in cooperating. And this, for example, triangle between Pakistan, Turkey, and uh, China is, uh, is quite interesting to see because both countries have strong relationship with China, uh, with each other, Turkey and Pakistan and Pakistan and China. But then when you put the other part of the triangle together, the Turkish and Chinese relationship, then it starts to have some friction. But uh, it's a time since 2016 when the coup, the tentative coup to overthrow Erdogan failed, Turkey is looking east and China is increasingly become an option and an important partner. Don't forget, for example, as I mentioned earlier, that Turkey is a member of NATO, is the biggest army inside NATO, and Turkey advanced aerial defense system is made in Russia. And it tells a lot. Last but not least, uh, the relation with Israel. Most of the time, uh, talking with not Middle East uh, scholar and expert, uh, people forget uh, that Israel is a Middle East country. Uh, as Italian, I always like to consider that part as a Mediterranean part, because I don't like much the label Middle East itself. But having said that, it's quite interesting to see how uh, the relationship between Israel and China plays. Uh, Israel among uh, the Middle East was, was one of the latest countries to structure formal diplomatic relations with China and was in the early 90s. But still in the 70s, late 70s, there were informal ties between the two countries, something that are still going on up to now. There was a huge stop by the US in the year 2000. And basically, I can use what Bibi said about China, Benjamin Netanyahu, is that China needs three things from Israel. Israeli technology, Israeli technology, Israeli technology. And it's something that China has been keen on, especially on the defense sector. For example, uh, the US intervened in the year 2000 very firmly to stop uh, the sale from Israel of the Falcom and Harpy system. Falcom is an airborne early advanced system and Harpy is a drone technology. And most of the Chinese drone technology come from Israel. Because uh, while we look uh, in the 2011, 2015, uh, as the Reaper drone and the other kind of drone, uh, and we perceive the US as a starter of drone technology, that's the case in terms of targeted assassination. And then the evolution with Turkey, TB2, Nagorno-Karabakh war, and so on. We don't have to forget that the father of drone aerial system is Israel that started to use in the Six Days War and since then developed it. And there are Israel technicians that developed it in the United States and developed it also in China. 
Having said that, uh, beside uh, dual use technology, that is one of the main issue in the triangle between the United States, Israel, and China, China is absorbing advanced technology for agricultural use. That is very important, especially now with the severe drought, with climate change, uh, China is looking at Israel in providing this kind of technology. At the same time, uh, China is very good in doing one thing, promising access to market. China has been doing that for more than three decades with the European Union, and now is doing it, uh, promising an FTA, free trade agreement with Israel. Israel is quite discontent in what is happening, and there is some promise of better economic access to China. I don't see it coming. This is a game that China is very apt and play extremely well in showing the huge basket of carrot, but this basket every time get more far and more far. And we don't have to forget that, yes, Chinese surveillance and cyber technology are extremely important in the Middle East, but the top of the line come from Israel. NSO, for example, we had uh, the founder of NSO, Omri Lavi, on our podcast uh, just a few months ago, come from Israel, and it's a kind of technology that uh, is percolating into China and also in the Arab world, especially after the Abraham Accord uh, in the UAE, for example. And then uh, another thing that is quite interesting, Chinese soft power, as I mentioned, is quite spread along the Middle East, but uh, Israeli, the Jewish culture, is a very strong soft power in China. If you go to Shanghai, for example, the Holocaust Museum is visited by a lot of Chinese on a daily basis. The relationship between Israel and China are very strong because, for example, the city of Shanghai was an open city during the Second World War. And migration, especially from uh, the Jews, came from uh, Russia and from uh, Germany, moving to Italy and then moving to Shanghai created a very strong cultural bond. I still recall a uh, uh, program in Chinese television when you have all the Chinese uh, uh, citizens from Israel talking Shanghai dialect or this kind of thing. That were the deep bond and link that was done at, at the time. And then narrowing at the end, what are the opportunities for Singapore? If Singapore has been before a gate for the oil gas moving from the Middle East to East Asia, now, especially with the digital silk road, in my personal opinion, if we don't arrive to a digital iron curtain, but two systems that have more security problem in communicate to each other, Singapore can be the preferential gate when the two systems can communicate and can be a conduit for the Middle East looking East and not only related to, to China. Uh, of course, uh, if we are going uh, to, to witness a, a total separation of the two siphon, this is something that uh, is going to be extremely bad. And uh, even uh, uh, Premier Li Xianlong mentioned not long ago that uh, if we look at the bifurcation of technology, bifurcation of market, bifurcation of trust is going to be a very bad outcome for everybody. And with this, I hope that I've been at least uh, focused on the three points. This is a list of quite recent book that uh, I strongly suggest, especially to the student, if they want to have a look. Uh, Jonathan Fulton Handbook on China-Middle East Relation basically has everything that you want to look at the area. It's an impressive collection 
uh, of a scholar essay on, on the issue. And I'm not saying impressive because I wrote the one on the security part. Uh, the other, written by Guy Burton, is an extremely well-documented book about China conflict relationship in the Middle East. And it looked pretty well, especially at the part that I mentioned early from 1949 to 1979. Then looking at the Chinese point of view, one of the leading Chinese researcher on the Middle East is Sundagan. He just opened recently in Fudan University, a center for Middle East study. And then looking at China as a whole, as usual, Kerry Brown with his latest book on President Xi Jinping. Having said that, again, thank you very much for being here with me to listen. And I'm looking forward for question and answer. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alex, for this wonderful lecture. And the more we learn, the more questions uh, we have in our mind because we need to know more and more. So uh, uh, I would request uh, the audience for Zoom as well as here our guests. Uh, if they have the questions, uh, please uh, raise your hand and the mic will come towards you and then you can ask your question. And uh, in the meantime, uh, they're thinking about the question. I have a very important question. Uh, and I've been thinking about it for long. Uh, the primary question uh, for today, uh, it's been my observation, you can say whether I'm right or wrong, is that so far, I think, uh, uh, China has tamed Middle East. The question is in future, whether it will be able to tame or not. Uh, that is uh, the prima facie observation that comes to fore. Uh, but if I look at the other country, uh, other important major country, that is India, I see India has similar kind of balanced relationship with all the Middle East countries, the way China has with all the Middle East countries. So uh, the normal deduction would be that, has it been the doing more of China and India, or has it been doing more of the Middle East? So the conclusion would be that Middle East has been taming China, right? So I would just like to have your observation on this deduction. Thank you, Ziv, for putting me on the spot when I... More than taming is the cautious approach and the balance of vagueness helped China maintaining this kind of stability, position, and non-confrontational space. The question is how long, and I don't think there is much time left, that China is going to be able to sustain this kind of position. Because when you have an increasing presence of worker, an increasing presence of problem, an increasing presence of uh, terrorist attack and so on, you need to protect your worker. And some of the time, there are countries that are not willing or not capable to, do, to offer this kind of protection. As I mentioned earlier, one solution that already China called in for Pakistan and maybe for Afghanistan is the use of private security firm. Looking at India, one good news and just come out yesterday is that uh, in the contested area of Ladakh, Arunachai Pradesh, both countries are retreating their forces. So that gives a little bit of hope, not there will be a solution, but at least uh, a military confrontation, a direct military confrontation on the table, especially in a time like now with this high level of uncertainty. And it's quite interesting. Uh, on the position of India uh, in the Middle East, uh, I'm not going to give you an opinion for a simple fact that you are the expert on the matter and you are the expert on Iran, but I'm saying that uh, 
China has been advancing its position, for example, in Iran, in the area of port area, in an area where India was already trying to lead the pack and failed to do so in some respect. So India definitely is feeling the pressure from China in the area, and uh, the competition is led on uh, FDI, not on troops. And then China has a far more capability to offer, or at least, as I mentioned before, to promise huge investment in the area. So is the Middle East taming the dragon? No, at the moment, because China is still driving it with its own policy. Is China going to tame the Middle East? No, because China is not engaging on a 360 degree spectrum. But one part that I was discussing recently when I was in, in Europe, uh, we, and by we I mean uh, Europe, the West, the US, and especially Europe, are always stuck in the idea of putting label and to focusing on only one problem. We have a kind of security tunnel vision. Everything now in Europe is Ukraine. Afghanistan is no more there. It's a crisis in the making. It's a crisis ongoing. Yemen is not there. And then this is this area. Now the mantra is Indo-Pacific. Everybody wants to talk about, about Indo-Pacific. And Europe, of country like mine, Italy, who is focused on Mediterranean, for example, is now talking about Indo-Pacific. And everybody is doing strategy about Indo-Pacific, while China is a different game. China is not looking at separate area. China is looking at the board and is not a chessboard, is a way board, is a go board, is a different game. As in Europe, people like to play chess, and in chess you go to kill the king, then you win. When you play Go or Wei Qi in Chinese, you don't go to kill your adversary. You go to encircle your adversary. So if you look at all the map of the world and you start to look at the BRI and you have Central Asia, Kazakhstan 2013, Indonesia 2024, Middle East 2016, Europe, then you start to see a big picture. And China is not playing a, a narrow tunnel vision game. It's playing on all the board at the same time, considering the fact that, that there are limited resources. So I hope I answered your question. Uh, yes, and you have raised one more question. And I would like to ask you uh, that one. Uh, OK, presently, uh, we have talked about the, the present. Now, looking into the future, what would uh, China's role be in the Middle East? Uh, we can take a hint from the U.S. political system, the domestic political system, and the the private you know sector. So these are the two uh, factors which have actually uh, influenced U.S. role in the Middle East. Uh, like Republicans, we see they want U.S. to have more and more role. Democrats say, okay, let's get out of uh, this place. You know better the the private you know uh, firms their role uh, in 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 the uh, in the Middle East. And that is how they lobby to the policymakers to um, make decisions in order to have some kind of inroads in Middle East. Now, here in the in China, we have unity of command. So my question specifically to you is that how much of China's today's role in the Middle East is particularly because of the domestic political system of China? And if that changes, will the game change? Yes, that's a, a difficult question again. Um, the problem in China is that there is a private sector in China, but where the state end and the private start is really much, much of debate. And that's the first thing. If we look at the Belt and Road, it's paraded by state-owned enterprises. It's the state. State draw the line 
held the direction, bank, support, state-owned enterprises. And then there is a multitude of small, medium enterprises that are private that follow up. But it's very interesting if we look at the digital Silk Road. Digital Silk Road is not spearheaded by Chinese SOEs, it's spearheaded by Chinese technological giants that are private. Of course, private with Chinese characteristics. But then, for example, the fine that uh, Beijing slapped on Jack Ma recently, it's a reminder of how these companies still have to be in line with the direction and the geopolitical interest of Beijing. And uh, this um, question, it's quite interesting because Rofkin, uh, not only soft power, but uh, the alternative model that I was mentioning before, a non-market uh, democratic model. China is trying to show to the world that the Chinese model, state-led, is more efficient, more valuable, and uh, is with less string attached. And this, uh, in the Middle East, resonates very well in terms of trade cooperation, in terms of political cooperation, uh, because uh, most of the corporate uh, executives that I met in the Middle East, they, when I was asking about uh, the adoption of Chinese technology, they said uh, when we talk about uh, cybersecurity, privacy, and this issue, they are not lecturing us. And I was coming talking about China, and it's quite important. The other thing that I see that is a problem for China in the Middle East, and then is the Middle East Semin the Dragon, as you mentioned, there are different perception and expectation from Middle East country about China. What I want to say is normally there are overinflated expectations. China is going to invest billion everywhere to give money to everybody. This is not going to happen. Chinese are very cautious where they're investing. President Xi Jinping has been mentioning since 2018 that BRI is not going to invest in projects that don't have a positive ROI for China. And at the same time, it's not only related to political value, but then in the Middle East and all other countries on the BRI, the biggest question is when China, and it will come the time, is going to convert the economic uh, chip that put on that country into a political one to assert political pressure out of that. And definitely sooner or later it's come. But this problem of uh, different expectation definitely is already showing uh, in other areas, not in the Middle East, but in Africa, for example, if you look at Ethiopia, there was a lot of expectation about development zone near Addis Ababa, it didn't happen. And then the population got frustrated about China, but several problems were not only related to China. And then there is all the discourse about uh, development model and so on. Thank, thank you so much, Alex. And uh, you have mentioned uh, the US uh, perception of the threat in the Middle East and it has very explicitly documented that Russia and China are the threat to security and stability. Uh, I think you are the best person to answer. How exactly is China's view? What exactly is the China's view of the security scenario in the Middle East? Uh, what is the definition of threat in eyes of China, uh, internal as well as external? Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, uh, if you have uh, a, a diplomacy, banking diplomacy or developmental diplomacy based on trade and development, uncertainty and insecurity is first and foremost the big. Another is uh, what China call uh, external forces uh, trying to enact other color revolution, not only in the Middle East, but in Central Asia or in the rest. That's another perceived threat. 
But having said that, um, the biggest problem uh, is also in country that uh, need development assistance. And then again, uh, we are looking at over expectation. For example, uh, not long ago in 2020, 2021, uh, Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, was calling at uh, an increasing partnership with China, something that never materialized in what the Lebanese uh, or Hezbollah was expecting. Iran, uh, Yatollah himself, was calling a quantum leap in diplomatic relationship, but still uh, trade with China is not looking at the $400 billion that people always talk about the MOU. And that figure is completely wrong, by the way. And then uh, in other countries, these expectations are creating possible fracture. If China misses this expectation, then there is going to be a, a reaction. But then foremost is the instability and uncertainty that create problem. And we don't have to forget also that China feared much movement of terrorist organization, uh, especially from Splinter Cell, from Al-Qaeda and ISIS, that a part, as I mentioned, moving to Africa, but another part is moving to Afghanistan, especially in the area uh, of Khorasan, Islamic State in Khorasan. And then uh, for the first time, considering the fact that the US is no more on the target as a primary target of the area, slowly China is moving as a primary target. Thank you so much. I would encourage my audience to uh, ask questions. Uh, yeah, please uh, go ahead. Hello, uh, Richard Yarrow from the NUSC Station Institute. Thank you so much for the very informative and comprehensive presentation. I have many questions and remarks for you later on. Um, but I guess to begin, um, the US and Europe over the last 20 years in particular have built a very large infrastructure for analysis and research on the Middle East, universities, think tanks within governments. To what extent has China followed through with its own infrastructure? on research, policy analysis, other kinds of understandings of the full region from a, an in-depth perspective. Uh, there have been studies in the US on um, the Chinese analysis uh, of uh, the United States or the Institutes of American Studies at different universities. I'm very curious to hear your views on the Chinese Middle East Institutes and their capabilities. Thank you. That's a, a complex question. Let's start uh, maybe with an answer uh, before this question is, does think tank matter? No. So of course, being, I've been working in think tank for all my life, uh, I obliged to say yes. And then we have to talk about the impact of think tank and the evolution of strategic thinking. Then if we answer maybe yes, to this first question is uh, when you produce the knowledge, is the knowledge reaching the political decision making? And there's impact. Looking at China, uh, of course, you have a small group. A small group are very efficient in absorbing knowledge for decision making, but also we have uh, a top down approach. Uh, to policy. And the biggest problem, especially with the youngest generation of researchers, but it's not only to China, it's quite common, when you have uh, a top-down approach uh, to political decision, researchers tend to please what is at the top. And this may be, could be one of the reasons why someone else, we are not talking China, and we are not making names now, Russia, 
make the decision to invade a country, thinking that it was capable, that it was able to deliver it in a few weeks with an army that was capable, and probably there was someone that delivered that kind of information. So one of the threats for any country is to have the people that have to tell you reality, to tell you something that is not real. And the other thing is uh, China has high-level think tank in international relations, looking at the Middle East, uh, coming from Beijing. Uh, Kikir is one of the best, in my opinion, delivering very sharp uh, analysis uh, that range from the Middle East relation to nuclear non-proliferation. The one that I mentioned in Fudan is also very high level. But we are talking about uh, an old generation of China, of Chinese researcher. Then we have to see the new generation of Chinese researcher that has been brought into China with, let's say, a different approach and availability of information, less communication with the world. This three year of COVID didn't help at all, when especially you are a researcher and you need an approval to get online to talk with uh, foreign colleagues and so on. And still uh, uh, from a Western China hand part, uh, this three year has been really difficult for people like me. I've, I've been, I lived in China for 23 years. And then I'm used to move back and forth and to talk with Chinese colleagues, but with uh, zero COVID dynamic has been impossible to move to China because I didn't have enough time to spend 10 days, 14 days or 20 days in, in lockdown. And it will be very difficult to, in person, to have in-person meeting. And this definitely constrains all the knowledge, all the travel and so on. And you, you can do a lot on Zoom, but not everything. Thank you so much, Alex. Uh, we have any other question from the floor? Ah, yes, please, uh, John Lu. So Jean-Luc Saman from uh, the Middle East Institute. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Alex, for your your lecture. The, my my question is, uh, I'd be interested to uh, to get your your thoughts on. China's interest in having a naval or military presence in the Gulf. And I'm thinking in particular about the speculations there were about a year ago uh, about China developing a naval facility in the UAE. And I heard a lot about uh, the UAE perspective, the Gulf perspective, and a lot about the US perspective, which was the trigger for the, uh, the talk about that. But I'm actually wondering, how, do you feel like it makes sense, it would make sense for China to have that type of presence? Um, so just seeing from uh, Beijing, do you do you think that it's something we should expect in coming years or not so much? In terms of port, uh, definitely. Don't have to forget that according to the Chinese regulation, each port, commercial port that have uh, Chinese presence abroad also need to have uh, capabilities in terms of supplying uh, uh, and maintenance for a vessel, military vessel. Having said that, one thing is to write that on a law, and the other thing is the capability in doing that. Uh, the UAE part uh, was a news that came out from the United States uh, about China building a military port there. There's not much. Uh, uh, discussion after that, uh, but uh, it stopped the sales of Norinco drone uh, and other kind of military equipment to the UAE for a while. I don't know if that sale went on. Uh, since uh, 2013, presidency uh, focused on the reform of the PLA. Uh, in his word, making the PLA capable to fight and win war, and that means lift 
lift. Now it's still uh, very limited. China has a limited reach outside, but uh, among uh, the armed force, the PLA Navy is the one that, in my personal opinion, uh, let's say, had um, the fastest uh, development, is able to coordinate mission far from the Chinese shore. And then definitely Djibouti is not enough in terms of port. Logistically, uh, if you want me to guess and to bet, and I hope, unfortunately, it's recorded, so people will take into this in a few years, uh, coast of Africa and Maldives make more sense, strategically speaking, especially if you look uh, at the competition on the Indian Ocean with India. That's one of the cases why the Middle East definitely can come to the fore, but more in Israel area when you have also the Red Sea and the other part in the port. And that's why the US is putting so much pressure on Israel in terms of stopping uh, China. And good luck with that, especially now that they change government like Italy every six months. Thank you so much. Any other question? OK, please. Uh... Hi, thank you, uh, Dr. Adrino. Yeah, I'm Elizabeth. Yes, I just got a question um, following from uh, Dr. Jean Wills. Um, what is the cyber cap um, capabilities of the PLA? If you could give me your assessment. Okay, that's a very detailed question. And unfortunately, I don't have a detailed answer because I'm not a specialist in cyber warfare. Having said that, um, I can say that one, the DSR, as I mentioned many times before, is providing capabilities on that respect. Because if you have an infrastructure, where you can channel all the information that you control the big data unless you win 50% of the battle. In part of cyber capability for an army, the People Liberation Army was one of the first army in the world to recognize the cyber sphere are a decisive part of the new warfare. In late 90s, I forgot the date, two colonels from the PLA wrote a book that in English can be loosely translated as unrestricted warfare. That's not hybrid warfare, but is the use of different means from information, cyber capability, disinformation, and cyber attack to achieve objective. And why China, as well as Russia, was very keen to develop this capability? Because both countries got shocked by the rapidity of the US destroying the Iraqi army. And they realized early on at the time that a face-to-face -face confrontation with the might of the US army was not going to be possible, not for Russia, not for China. So in this respect, Russia developed what wrongly is called Gerasimov doctrine, is a Primakov doctrine adopted by General Makarov in gray area warfare, or if you want to call it, but I don't like this label, hybrid warfare. And at the same time, since the 90s, the PLA has been devoted time, training, and capabilities to fight war by other means. That it means non-kinetic confrontation. So cyberspace and space are the two main domain. Cyberspace capability are there, and space capabilities are also there because China is one of the leading manufacturers in nanosatellite. And this is very important. This is some of the technology, for example, that Iran is looking to absorb from China. Hope I answered your question. Thank you so much, Alex. Any other, if not, then you'll give me. 
Thank you very much um, for the comprehensive presentation. I learned a lot. Um, so my question is on the clean energy geopolitics. Um, so recently, the U.S. have uh, you know um, uh, signed this um, Inflation Reduction Act, and uh, a big chunk of that act is actually to uh, enhance investments uh, in the clean energy transition uh, in the U.S. and Actually, one of the main reasons for that is like to uh, to compete with China. Um, now, if we look at the Middle East and the Gulf states uh, uh, particularly, um, if we look at the clean energy investments there, um, most of it actually is coming from China. And uh, when I speak to the people like uh, small, medium enterprises uh, in the Gulf, uh, they uh, Actually, they mentioned that they get the technology from China because it's cheaper. So um, from what you said, like uh, um, the US could put an influence on the Middle East, like not to pursue China, for example, in terms of Hawaii. Uh, um, do you think it's safe to say that uh, uh, the US could influence the Middle East uh, pursuant of investments from China in any case? Uh, on this, I mean, I, I can give you the same answer about U.S. trying to constrain uh, Chinese high, not only green investment. Um, uh, in recent years, especially in the last two years, uh, China, uh, U.S. has uh, a basket uh, with less carrot, and the stick is getting shorter. At the time of the Trump administration, Mike Pompeo was jumping from one country to the other, from the Middle East, then arrived near here, Malaysia, and then Indonesia, just telling, don't use Chinese technology. But there was not an alternative. Then when you go uh, and dealing with traders, with people, they make a living out of it, uh, and you have an option for good quality, because China is not producing no more just cheap T-shirt. You have good quality affordable price, uh, and the cherry on the top, uh, not in the Gulf, uh, but in area like Africa or other part of the MENA region, is that China is also offering financial service for that. And then the competition is very hard. Then if we want to talk about unfair competition, yes, because there are a lot of high technology, small medium enterprise uh, on green energy from Europe that have advanced technology, but cannot compete with China juggernaut. It's borderline unfair competition because they don't have access to financial credit from their own bank, from the company. Their price is higher some of the time, and the benefit can be seen only after decades. So the choice is obvious. But then China has, for example, dominance on the solar panel all over the world. It's a green energy enable, but on the BRI in several areas, is still promoting coal, for example. Then is an issue. Uh, and at the same time, U.S., especially when I recall the, the talk with Blinken and Wang Yi, mentioned that uh, is an adversary, is a competitor, but it's also a possible uh, partner for cooperation. And the green part is the partner of cooperation. So still, the U.S. and the West look at China for cooperating on the green the energy transition. Having said that, my question, and I don't have an answer, is how you can be uh, a partner on Monday, an adversary on the weekend, uh, and then uh, a competitor in the middle of the week. Then it's, uh, it's still uh, on the line. But having said that, um, definitely China uh, is an important, uh, it's a pillar 
in the energy transition and forgetting China into that or corralling into that all is just going to, to create a huge problem. That's a matter of science. Thank you so much. We have some questions from our Zoom audience. Uh, this question reads, you have talked at length about the SCO meeting taking place now, uh, today, tomorrow. It is a bit outside the scope of the Middle East, but she and Putin are scheduled to meet soon. But over this week, there have been some conflicting reports about Li Shanshu's remarks. Moscow says China supports it. Beijing has been rather more quiet. What can we expect when the two leaders meet? If the two leaders meet. Okay. Uh, if they meet, definitely uh, it's going to be interesting to look to see this uh, forever partnership between Russia and China uh, and uh, the meeting supposedly looking at the, the, the two different versions in Russian and Chinese that happened uh, in, in Moscow is quite interesting because it recalls what I mentioned earlier about Iran. If you look at the version in Farsi and the version in Chinese, in the Chinese media, the MOU, the 25 years, has been quite downplayed. It's something that China signed with Iran, economic trade and cooperation. From the Iranian side, from a media perspective, from being excluded from the geopolitical arena, has been played all over the news, showing to the Iranian population and to the world that Iran has an important friend. And I do believe that it's something that is happening right now. And it's quite interesting because uh, in terms of historical relationship between Russia and China, always there's been uh, this uh, relationship of big brother and small brother, but uh, as soon and even before, a little bit before the, the war started, it's clear now who is the big brother? Who is the small brother in the two relationships? Thank you. Uh, there's one more question related to uh, China's position on JCPOA, if you could answer that. Yes, uh, um, on this is quite complex. I mean, I think we have just three minutes uh, and we will need three, four hours to, to talk about JCPOA. Uh, China has been always uh, in the discussion and trying to support the JCPOA. Definitely is going to lose some of the grip in the economic lifeline to Iran is going to acquire more oil for sure, is going to increase uh, uh, local investment uh, that are broad investment from agricultural development, industrial development, even tourism and religious tourism to Iran. While uh, at the same time, um, uh, a nuclear Iran is going to create a severe headache in Beijing in terms of regional nuclear proliferation. So is adding different variable in a very complex game. And at the same time, uh, if we see on, on long term how this is going to play, uh, I mentioned before, there are two different perceptions in the Middle East of China. One is the elite and one is the population. China has been helping Iran for a really long time, but there was a scandal. It's the Kunlun Bank scandal, where China uh, received a huge sum of cash from Iran that Iran was using to avoid sanction and to acquire. And then when the sanction was lifted with the first JCPOA, China refused to send it back to Iran. So this kind of uh, mistrust about China at the population street level, I do believe is still lingering in the air. But then if the JCPOA finally is going to find a, a solution, China is going to try to manage as best the trade relationship with Iran. We have to see if this is going to increase security relationship or where Iran is going to use that money. Thank you so much. Uh, we have one more question and uh, uh, this is Hawaii has been blocked in the UK and US. Why the Gulf is not having any security concerns about 
Chinese intentions. And if I could club uh, the other question, uh, it's right. It's about the is the Chinese digital Silk Road going to lead to a technological bifurcation? And if I could add to that one more question uh, about the currency, because China has its own satellite system, right? It has all its own uh, undersea uh, fiber optic, that's the digital world. Uh, military, of course, everyone knows. The only uh, thing where it is lacking in terms of uh, giving full competition to the US is the currency. So uh, uh, can the world be bifurcated in these terms, including the currency, if you could answer this, maybe last question. Okay, and uh, you asked me this for two minutes. Okay, uh, let me answer the first part, uh, yes, and the second part, no. Let me elaborate on that. Why uh, yes in the first part? Digital Silk Road, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, in several Middle East countries, especially AI software for crowd control, facial recognition is very well received. And there is the perception that acquiring a machine, acquiring a software, and having the control gives you agency. And from a security standpoint, it's a wrong perception. Because if someone else is remote controlling that software or that hardware, is that country that has agency. And this will be possible to see this in, uh, in, in the long term, but not even so long term. So from a security point of view, it's a huge leverage that any country that controls this technology. Let me give you a very straightforward example. You control hospital big data on the server. That's just uh, medical information, but then you can weaponize that information because you can have predictive software telling you what kind of pattern a country will have, for example, life expectancy, or what kind of food or medicine that country barely need. And if you constrain and create choke point in that variable, then you are going to severely damage that country without the need of a military boot on the ground. On the other part that you asked and the uh, answer was, uh, was no, uh, is uh, yes, satellite, fiber optic, uh, and so on, but uh, this still is only a, a part of the game. There is a lot of uncertainty down the line, and it will be quite difficult to make any prediction on how the global security architecture is going to be shaped. In this respect, dollar supremacy is there. The internationalization of the renminbi, I don't see it anytime soon. Maybe I'm wrong, but when I was living in China, it was the buzzword in the year 2000, Shanghai becoming the capital financial capital of China with renminbi internationalized. Then it was 20, 2005, 2010, 2015, they talked about it and now nobody's talking about internationalization. Yes, digital UN is something, but then uh, uh, supremacy of the dollar is there. The question is, is the supremacy of the dollar still enabling the US to use sanction as a weaponization of the economy and sanction are effective? And I think the answer is immediate and come from Russia, not from China. Are the sanctions of Russia after the annexation of Crimea in 2014 and after the full invasion, full-scale invasion, February 24 this year, effective? That's, that's my answer. Thank you so much, Alex, uh, for answering uh, such complex questions in such lucid way. Uh, I learned a lot I, and I hope the audiences have experienced the same. And uh, at the end, I would just like to thank all of our audience, to you and to Middle East Institute, uh, National University of Singapore for organizing this talk and also to our 
audience, digital audience sitting over Zoom. And uh, with this week, we conclude this session. We invite you all to uh, to, to the next week ses uh, session, uh, which where we will be focusing on the next great power that is Russia. And with a big round of applause, we conclude this session. Thank you, Thank you very much.